Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. Wow. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this is our last installment of our eight-part Human Nature series that we've been airing this summer about our experiences with the natural world and how they shape us. And appropriately, at the end, we're going back to our roots. The two stories we're sharing with you today see our storytellers conflicted about the lands they're from, each in a very different way. Our first story today is from Kala Holiday. It was recorded at his home in Hawaii last July. It's April 3rd, 2018, and I'm guiding a twilight volcano tour as I have done countless times over the last several years. Representing my home and culture, I'm proudly sharing with my visitors stories of our people's past and the legends of our gods whilst traveling through black and barren lava fields of Kilauea. The weather is wet and cold, and I can tell it's weighing on the experience of my visitors but I'm determined to make the most of the day for them and show them as much as I possibly can. I notice as we begin climbing an elevation towards the volcano's summit, the clouds begin to lift and the rain stops just as we are approaching Pauahi Crater. I pull into the parking lot to find barely any other vehicles and a beautiful view all the way down. Despite this, most of my visitors in the van were showing signs of disinterest, aside from the youngest in our group, Patricia. She sees my conch shell and asks if I can blow it for her, and I cheerfully agree to do so. Patricia and her father exit the van and follow me down the trail, and once we reach the lookout, I raise the conch shell to my lips. The next thing I remember is a blindingly bright flash where all I can see is white and all I can hear is ringing. I feel like I'm falling from a great height and I hit the ground hard. I can feel all the muscles in my body twisting and contracting to the point that I can hear the vertebrae in my spine popping and feel like my arms and legs are going to snap in half. 
My entire body refuses to obey me as I shake and writhe on the ground. The ringing in my ears fades to the crescendo of Patricia's screams behind me as I struggle to regain control of my body, completely unable to do anything to help her. As I slowly begin to feel my fingers and hands again, I lift myself up to find all of us on the ground. I look over, and Patricia's father scoops his daughter up into his arms and exclaims, We just got hit by lightning! I look around us and saw other tourists in the area just staring at us with shocked expressions. And I notice my conch is gone. I stumble onto my feet and rush Patricia and her father back to our tour van and begin trying to call for emergency assistance. But no reception. I need to make sure they're okay. I keep thinking to myself. I can't wait around here for help. I choose to drive us back to the park entrance and call an ambulance. And after doing so, I text my boss to let him know we were struck by lightning and to inform the restaurant that our group will be late to dinner. A first responder arrives and immediately begins asking for my information. He asks me what happened, and I attempt to explain. He abruptly cuts me off and condescendingly states, Hey, Calm down. Aren't you a tour guide? Shh. You should have known better then. You're responsible for this family's safety. His words fill me with rage, but I bite my tongue. The ambulance arrives, and the medics begin checking our hearts and bandaging our wounds. We're all surprised to see that Patricia barely had a scratch on her whereas her father and I were both bleeding from our elbows and knees from where we had been shaking against the ground. The medics don't notice any obvious concerning issues, but still recommend we go to the hospital for more thorough testing. Patricia's father assures me that he and his daughter are fine and don't wish to go to the hospital, and I refuse the offer as well, and we just continue on with our tour as if it was just a minor setback. After returning them back to their hotel, it's then that I am hit with the heavy realization of what happened to us that day, and how close we came to dying. The words of our first responder echoing in my mind over and over. I begin to blame myself for what happened. I get back to the office to clock out, and my boss is waiting there. I got your message. Is the van okay? I'm confused and angry at his response and try to patiently explain that it wasn't the van that was hit by lightning. I tell him I'm going to the hospital and that I need the day off for tomorrow. That's unfortunate, but we don't have anyone available to cover you, he says. I then scream at the top of my lungs. I was struck by lightning. Do you know what it feels like to be electrocuted? Frustrated, I leave and check into the hospital at midnight. Several tests and three IVs later, I leave the hospital at around 5 a.m. 
and head straight back to the office to clock in for the next tour. My coworker and friend greets me as he normally does. Hey, Kala, how's it going? And I immediately break down and become completely hysterical. I could have died yesterday. A little girl almost died yesterday because of me. I was struck by lightning in the house of Pelehunuamea, the goddess of fire. What did I do? Why were we punished? Pele took my poo. She took my conch shell. My friend sees I'm in no condition to be driving a tour group and offers to cover it for me. He then sends me home to sleep, but I can't. I start calling up all the people that I love just to let them know how much I care about them and how much they mean to me. For the next few days, I try to tell other people and can't find anyone to help relate to my trauma. Many are dismissive, telling me that I'm lucky, and others don't seem to believe me at all. Most likely due to the culture that links us together, it was my Hawaiian friends that were the most empathetic towards my experience. I have always considered myself a man of science and reason, priding myself in the quality of information I would research and share with my visitors. But when it came to folklore and legend, even I dismissed it as nothing more than just stories and old superstitions. But I couldn't help but feel that this experience and, and where it happened had a greater significance to it. Many Hawaiian cultural practitioners practice interpreting hoa'ilona, omens from our surroundings. I felt unqualified to interpret this for myself and why I sought the counsel of a man I have great respect for, Okoni. For years, he has been teaching me and others the chants and ceremonies of our ancestors in order to help keep these traditions alive. And his response to me was, Aloha e kala. If you were being punished, you would have transitioned. The fact you walked away is a sign this is a message you were meant to share. The conch shell is used to awaken and summon everyone to action. If we look at this message as a universal one and not a personal one, mankind is hesitant on moving forward and assuming or acknowledging things. We keep pushing things aside. A threshold is in front of you, and you need to prepare to go through it before the poo summons you to it. Fire from the sky means new beginnings, and you flew your conch shell because the time has passed. Your divinity has crossed with an epiphany awaiting for you to react. Remember, thunder first, then lightning, then rain. And if it's night, there is stillness. If it's daytime, a rainbow. Indicating the gods ensure that the natural cycles continue. Nothing to be afraid or startled by. The elements spoke clearly, and your message applies to all of us. I honestly have no idea what any of what he said really meant. All I know is that it helped me calm down and feel a bit better. A sign of great change. A message that applies to us all. 
By the end of April, the Ventapuo'o on Kilauea, which had been erupting non-stop since 1983, completely drops its lava lake and ends its 35-year-long eruption. The name of the crater we were struck by is Pauahi, which means the ending fire. In the following days, changes to the volcano grew more dramatic, and by May 3rd, one lunar cycle after I was struck, new fissures opened up in one of the communities on our island, and fountains of lava began flowing from roads and beneath homes. The stories I had shared with visitors throughout the years were coming to life before our eyes. Over the next few months, our community witnessed one of the largest eruptions in recorded history and it gave me a much clearer understanding of what our legends and stories are referring to. Forces of nature personified as gods. The eruption was altering weather all around the island. Many of us saw hail fall from the sky for the first time in our lives. Tornadoes forming above the flow. Ash plumes rising thousands of feet high that darkened the sky and lightning storms generated by pyrocumulus clouds. Entire forests were consumed by the Red River, and mountains were born and grew in a matter of weeks. The goddess of fire represents both destruction and creation. And the 2018 eruption demonstrated this by destroying over 700 homes, in a matter of four months, but also created more than 870 acres of new land and a new black sand beach on the island's eastern shore in the same time frame. Though many families were displaced by the lava flow, not a single fatality occurred. Was this the great change? Even the locations of where the lava first broke out are named in many of our legends as places Pele stopped at on her way to the summit of Kilauea before making her home there. My experience has led me to a much deeper understanding of how our ancestors were able to live alongside such great forces and the methods they developed in order to survive here. Our stories may very well have been referring to actual events witnessed by our ancestors and describing them in the only way they understood how to. The practices of our people weren't as primitive and superstitious as many of us were led to believe. Through the observations of their environment and their connections with the land they lived on, ancient Hawaiians accomplished many feats that today are difficult to replicate even with the modern advancements we currently possess. Sharing this story definitely helps me to cope with the trauma. I feel it has taught me to be more attentive to my surroundings in ways I have never noticed before. The flashes of cameras and even the boom of fireworks still give me flashbacks, but I've begun to see them as a reminder of what I've been touched by and the realizations that this ordeal has led me to. was Kalaa Holiday. Kalaa is a lineal descendant of the original native inhabitants and caretakers of Heiuahanua Ohananao, a temple that was and still is a place of refuge. 
He actively participates in ceremonies and rituals involving the ancient religious sites of his ancestors in hopes of maintaining and preserving the practice for future generations. As a guide, Kula has shared his home and heritage with hundreds of visitors from around the world, using tourism as a platform to demonstrate to outsiders that his home is far more than just pineapples, Elvis Presley, and coconut bras. Before we continue on today, I just want to remind everyone that if you want to support stories like the ones you're listening to today, if you, like all of us at Story Collider, believe in the power these stories have to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, you can sign up to support the Story Collider on Patreon every month. Just go to patreon.com slash the Story Collider. We so appreciate the support of our patrons, especially in this past year. You can also check out storyclider.org for more information on upcoming shows and workshops. We have outdoor shows coming up this fall in New York, Atlanta, St. Louis, and more. And no matter where you are, we have live stream tickets available for other upcoming shows. As we return to in-person work, StoryClider is continuing to offer our online storytelling workshops for individuals. StoryClider's approach to these workshops combines scientific theory with artistic practice so that each participant can learn and understand the research that underlies our philosophy of storytelling and also gain real, tangible communication tools that you can use in your lectures, talks, and performances, but also in day-to-day life. This is what makes our workshop unlike any other storytelling or science communication training. But you don't have to take my word for it. Here's some of our workshoppers sharing their experiences in their own words. Story Collider's storytelling class was amazing. It was a great experience. Over six sessions across two weeks, we got to learn the science of storytelling, how to make a story compelling. We worked with very energetic and professional and hilarious instructors. We also worked with each other among the students to workshop a story that we had in mind into a really great piece. I had a great time in the workshop. Uh, Gaspar and Devin did a really great job creating a, uh, a welcoming environment for, for maybe somebody who's a bit more introverted like me, but wants to be but wants to be a better writer and a better storyteller. It quickly became one of the highlights of my week. It really made me appreciate science in a new way because it reminded me of how human it is. The workshop is really good at teaching you how to storytell science in a way that it emphasizes the human part of the science and makes it insightful and meaningful and universal and relatable and inspiring. What's not to like about Story Collider Workshop? You get to hang out with an awesome bunch of people, get inspired, get amazing tips and tricks about effective storytelling, and you get to share your own stories. All in all, awesome, fun, amazing group to work with, and I had so much fun. I highly recommend it. Find out more about our workshop program at storyclider.org workshops. We would love to have you join our workshop community no matter where you're located in the world, no matter what career or career stage you're in. So once again, go to storycollider.org workshops to learn more and sign up today. Our next story today is from Jeremy Richardson. It was recorded at his home this August and originally shared at one of our Washington, D.C.-based online live shows. 
I remember once my dad asking me what I want to be when I grow up. I can't remember how old I was, maybe 10, but I know exactly where I was sitting, on the floor by the ottoman in front of his chair, where my younger brother and I often played games with him. Game times were happy moments when my dad wasn't working and he was in a good mood. I don't know, I said confidently, but I know that I want to be happy when I go to work. You see, my dad was a coal miner, and even at that young age, I knew that his work took a toll on him. Long hours and the constantly rotating shift work were a way of life. I remember I learned how to shave at 1 a.m. because he had just returned home from afternoon shift and woke me up to give me a lesson. His job was to fix the machines when they broke down, so I can only imagine the stress. And it's dangerous. I still have a vivid memory of his van coming up the driveway at the wrong time of day, and he was in the passenger seat with a patch over his eye. He recovered, just like he did the time a boulder fell on him and pinned him to the ground, fracturing his foot. My grandfather on my mom's side was a coal miner too. Papa was the first of his family to be born in the United States of Italian immigrants, and the mines were his ticket to building a better life for his family, for my family. The first house he and my grandmother lived in after they got married in 1933 didn't even have running water, and decades later, my grandmother would remember carrying well water up a steep hill to their house. According to family legend, he told her, stick with me, you'll wear diamonds. And she did. Paul Paul died of black lung in 1988. I was 13, and I still remember him as quiet and kind. None of this, of course, was remotely unusual where I grew up in West Virginia. Everyone has a family member who works in the mines, or used to, or knows someone who does. And black lung has changed countless families. My brother proudly followed in my dad's footsteps, but I never even considered the possibility, and I can't even explain why. I just remember cold nights staring through my telescope at the night sky, a failed attempt at starting a paper recycling program at my high school, a science project to determine whether biodegradable plastic bags really were, orange fingernails from an afternoon in a swimming hole contaminated with acid mine drainage. Eventually, I decided to work on climate change, but it didn't take me very long to realize that my background was quite unusual for someone working in the largely white, upper-middle-class, liberal coastal elites represented by the mainstream environmental movement. A colleague a few years ago called me a rainbow unicorn. Although I'm not quite sure what they make of my life choices, I know that my parents are proud of me. My dad is a man of few words, but he and my mom have always been there at the key moments of my journey like that time that dad and I drove an hour from Charleston up to Cayford Mountain to see an active mountaintop removal site. We learned about the community that used to exist up there before the blasting started and eventually drove everyone else away. We walked up to the edge of the ravine where a mountain once stood and looked at the mine site below, dozens of perfectly spaced circles where more dynamite would be buried and coal rolling away in dump trucks. My dad simply said, that ain't even good coal. The thing about working on policy, which I naively didn't appreciate, is that it's actually pretty hard to make an impact. I've spent years telling my story, pounding the table, making the case for robust and sustained and comprehensive policies to help the workers and communities 
facing the energy transition. And until fairly recently, it just seemed to fall on deaf ears. What's worse, sometimes I think I've simply been tokenized. Like that time I was so excited to be asked to go back to West Virginia to testify at an EPA hearing, to speak against the rollback of the rule restricting greenhouse gases from power plants. Dad was there, even though I'm pretty sure that he agreed with the rollback. My organization cared about greenhouse gases, but did they really care about the coal workers and communities that I lifted up in my remarks? My family? My home? It's like I'm caught in this strange no man's land, a part of two different worlds, but not quite at home in either one. Anyway, back in D.C. after the EPA hearing, in a meeting I was asked, hey, how'd it go? And I quipped, well, at least I'm not out of the will yet. And I was genuinely surprised that no one laughed at my joke. And when I later relayed this to my mom, she shot back, what's funny is that you think there's going to be anything left. <laughs> and, and so humor helps, because as comfortable as I am talking about coal to environmentalists, it's still really hard to talk about climate change to coal miners, especially my brother. We've always been there for each other, but he isn't much of a talker. I've never asked him, but I often wonder what climate change means to him. What he hears when we talk about the very real impacts that are happening now and will get worse if we don't move away from fossil fuels. The reality that when we get serious about tackling climate change, which we must, we probably won't be burning much coal in power plants in just 10 years. I imagine it must feel like a personal attack. But the thing is, it doesn't have to be. Not if we really listen to people like him and make sure that we get the policies right. My friend and my partner in crime in getting it right once pointed out that even if we're successful, the people we're trying to help will never thank us for it. It's kind of messed up, and yet I get it because change is hard. I have to believe there is a place for this rainbow unicorn in finding a solution to these competing existential crises. For how else will it be possible to build bridges without people who are part of both worlds? My only hope is that my brother knows that I've always been on his side. Jeremy Richardson. Hailing from a third-generation coal mining family in West Virginia and with more than 10 years of experience in climate and energy issues, Jeremy focuses on federal climate and energy policy development, specializing in the economics of energy, particularly coal and nuclear power, and writes and speaks passionately about the needs for a just transition for the coal fields. The Story Collider is so grateful to Kala and Jeremy for sharing their stories with us, Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director, Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikesha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Nissa Greenberg, Misha Gajewski, Shane Hanlon, and Miriam Zaringhollum. Our theme music is by Ghost.
Next week, we're going to begin bringing you the remainder of our COVID-19 stories, which seems timely, although I swear we definitely did not plan it that way. I remember thinking in May that the fall would be a great time for post-pandemic reflection, but alas, we are still in the thick of it. But I hope these stories will help us process some of the emotions that we're all feeling about this resurgence. We'll see you next week, and until then, thanks for listening.